my name is Joel Sedekes, and I am a member here at Park Community Church, Forest Glen, and I'm very, very happy to be preaching the Word, delivering God's Word to you this morning. And we are going to be opening up God's Word. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Please turn there now. If you're using one of the house Bibles underneath the seats, it's on page 944. So as you're turning there, we're talking today about what it means to be a child of God. We're talking about God as Father. And that's got me thinking about my own dad this week. I've been blessed to have been brought up with a godly mom and godly dad. I know that's not true for everybody, but it was true for me. I'm very grateful. And I'm the firstborn out of four kids. And there's this sociological fact that the firstborn tends to take on characteristics of the dad. It's not a hard and fast rule, just sort of a general general expectation. And it's very true for me. So people who know me tend to think that I'm kind of an intense person. Okay, you should meet my dad. All right, very intense. But knows how to work hard, knows how to get the job done. There was a time in my life when I realized how similar to my dad I was becoming, like adolescence, and I, I sort of chafed against that. But you know, as I've grown up and I've had children of my own, I am so grateful for the example that he set. And actually, I find myself referring back to my memories of my dad during my childhood all the time to help me figure out what to do in certain circumstances. Like about a month ago, our basement flooded because our sewer backed up. So you can imagine how disgusting that was and how terrible that was. I didn't want to deal with it, but I remembered a situation when I was a kid, our sump pump backed up, my dad went down there and he dealt with it. And I thought, okay, well, this is what dads do. I've got to get, I've got to get down there. So for me, I'm grateful that in many ways I resemble my dad. And it's sort of this fact of life that children resemble their parents. In the New Testament, God is called a father quite frequently. This is not as true in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is called a father sometimes, but it has more to do with him being the father of creation, him being the creator, more often than not. But in the New Testament, we have this intimate relationship with God that's presented where Jesus himself instructs his disciples to pray to God as our Father in heaven. And as followers of Jesus, we do call God Father. We have a relationship with God, and by far, it is the most important relationship in our entire life. If God is actually our Father, then we need to understand what that means for God to be our Father, and in doing so, it'll help us to understand not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with the world and with ourselves as well. So today we're continuing through our series in Romans, and our big question today is, what does it mean to be a child of God? So let's go ahead and read the text. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. And we're asking today, what does it mean to be a child of God? And this is absolutely vital, as I've said, to understanding our relationship with God, our relationship with the world, and our attitude towards ourselves. And the big idea that I think that God has for us this morning is this. God's children resemble God. God's children resemble God. Fairly simple. So my job this morning is to help you see what the Apostle Paul says here, how he teaches us that God's children resemble God. And we're going to look at three different ways that God's children resemble God. And those three ways are this. By holy opposition to sin, by harmony with God, and by hope in the midst of suffering. Holy opposition to sin, harmony with God, hope in suffering. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Our Father, we are so blessed to be able to call you Father. Thank you that you reveal yourself in your word as our Father. You are the God who gives us every good and perfect gift, and one of those gifts you've given us is the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray right now to be filled with your Holy Spirit, that I would say the words that you want me to say. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our ears, that we could receive and see wonderful things in your word. I pray that each and every one of us would leave here with something that you want us to live out and practice this week. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, that you would bring conviction over sin, but also restoration and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that today would be the day of salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at the first way that God's children resemble God. Look with me at verse 12. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. When Paul says brothers, he's not talking about male or female here. Brothers means all believers. He says, We're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we, we see that God hates sin. In fact, you can't even read the Bible without seeing that God hates sin. The Bible actually says that God can't even look at sin. The Bible calls God a man of war. God hates sin. And so it's expected that God's children would resemble him in opposing sin. And we need this, we need this reminder, we need this instruction, even as followers of Christ, because all too often we let sin dictate what we will do rather than than letting God dictate what we do. All too often, we let sin, we let the flesh decide what we watch, how we spend our time on social media, how we react when we're pushed by frustrating people. And you know what? Paul calls it the flesh. What he's getting at here is this. The the biblical word, the flesh, when we see that word flesh, it's not a nice word. 
It's a word that describes the nature that we were brought into this world with. The Bible says that each and every one of us was actually conceived in sin. We were created into this world from sinful parents, and we ourselves have a sin nature. And so the flesh is the, the word that refers to that sinful nature. And so in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 7, which we looked at a few weeks ago, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, for, I, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. In verses 17 and 18, he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And the word flesh is really the perfect description for the sinful nature. Because when we are tempted by sin, don't we feel it in our bodies? Don't we feel it physically? Think about the last time that you were misrepresented or disrespected or disobeyed by your kids, didn't you feel verklempt? Didn't you feel the, the, the temptation to lash out in your body? You could feel it right here in the top of your chest and in your throat. You wanna, you've got the perfect comeback. You just want to say it, and you're trying to hold back, but you feel it in your body. Or the desire to lust or to covet something or someone that doesn't belong to you. You feel that. It's a physical reaction. When Paul says flesh, it's the perfect word for the sin nature. But God hates that sin nature. And as his children, we too must be in holy opposition to the sin nature that used to dominate our lives prior to coming to Christ. If we had continued, if we had continued in the flesh, Paul says, we would have died. If you continue to live in a way that is in opposition to God, despite warning after warning from his word, despite the, the, the clear knowledge that God hates sin, that could very well be a sign that you are not in Christ at all. You're not God's child. I'm speaking in stark language because this is the language Paul uses. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay, Paul, what's the alternative here? Because sin has dominated my life for so long. How do I fight against it? Well, I love the imagery Paul uses here. He says, if by the Spirit, of, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Now, I, I love it because he doesn't say, if by the Spirit you avoid sin. If by the Spirit you hide from sin. If by the Spirit. Here's what you do. You get your sin down a little bit every day and you get it to a point where it's manageable and where no one's really that affected by it and it only takes place after hours, after the kids are in bed or, you know, it's just a little bit here and there and it's manageable and it's really fine and you're only giving in like one out of every three times you're tempted. That's okay. If by the Spirit you do that, yeah, you'll be fine. No, it doesn't say that at all. Look what he says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. If by the Spirit you sneak up behind sin wherever you find it in your life and strangle it, if by the Spirit you face sin head on and you say, sin, you used to dominate my life. You used to control me. I, I was dominated by the, by the desires of the flesh. In fact, I was, in, 
I was a debtor to you, sin. I was obligated to obey you, but not anymore. Jesus has set me free from you. And only one of us is going to make it out of this situation alive, and it ain't going to be you, sin. That's the attitude we're supposed to have towards sin. God hates sin. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, it says that God condemned sin in the flesh by having Jesus take on the likeness of sinful flesh, not sin, but as an offering for sin. And in Christ, our sinful flesh was condemned. And that means that you and I are free from sin's control. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Isn't that good news? So we have freedom from our flesh. And this, putting this into practice might look like intentionally keeping your mouth shut when you're angry. And that can be very hard. Not that I know from experience. Every single day of my life. <laughs> yes, I do. That is, a, that is one of my biggest sin struggles. But for you, it might look like something else. For you, it might look like canceling your Netflix subscription. Or even your Disney Plus subscription. I know. Yes, even Disney Plus, if it's causing you to sin. It might look like getting rid of your smartphone. If you need to. It might literally look like quitting your job, moving to a new city. Oh, I couldn't possibly do that. Why not? Put sin to death. Kill it. That is what God calls us to do. And yes, that is very uncomfortable. Yes, that hurts. It does hurt. It can lead to suffering. That's okay. We're going to talk about that later. Paul gives us an answer for that as well. It might look like battling the desire for lust or, or coveting. It might look like refusing to badmouth or, or gossip someone in your workplace. It might even look like setting your alarm 15 minutes early to fight laziness and spend extra time with God or going to bed 15 minutes earlier because you know you're especially vulnerable to the temptation to sin late at night. But to let sin live and thrive, to live by the flesh, is to live like you've never been set free. It's to live on a road that leads to death. And God's children don't need to live that way. God has something much better for us. So we put sin to death. So that ends the most violent section of today's message. Okay, the next one's not quite so violent. Let's talk now about the most, one of the most beautiful aspects of what it means to be a child of God. The second way that God's children resemble him is harmony with God. See, in God's nature, God experiences harmony within himself. The Bible talks about God in terms of three in one. God is triune. He's three and one. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three are so perfectly unified in love that they are rightly called one. We serve one God. We don't serve three gods. There's one God, three persons. And for all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other in perfect union and perfect harmony and perfect unity since forever. The very nature of what it means to be God is to have harmony with God. The Son has harmony with the Father. The Spirit has harmony with the Father. The Father has harmony and unity with the Spirit and the Son. So God's children, we would expect, would also have harmony with God. And that is exactly what the Apostle tells us here. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, he's transitioning from 
what he's just talked about, being led by the Spirit of God to put sin to death. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now the Apostle Paul is laying out two different relationships here. He's, he's talking about being a slave and he's talking about being a son. And he's talking about being a child. He uses two different words, son and child. And in the Bible, son, when the word son, when Paul uses that word, he's actually appealing to something really cool. The word son in Scripture is a legal term. This is why he says that we are sons. He doesn't say sons and daughters. Because the son in Roman law, if you, an adopted son who was brought into the family, was considered a true legal heir of the family. There was no distinction between the biological son and the adopted son. Very similar to our adoption law in the United States. But that wasn't the case in other cultures. So Paul is writing here to Romans, and they would have understood what it meant to be a son, to be adopted as son. Ooh, I get all the legal privileges and rights and obligations of what it means to be a part of this family. But he also uses the word child. And in Scripture, the word child has more to do with a shared nature. It's more like sharing someone's DNA. More like being a biological child. So for example, in John chapter 1, the, the author, the apostle John says, to all who receive Jesus, God gives the right to become children of God. He's talking about a change in your very nature and who you are. And Paul uses both terms, child and son, here in this passage which is really, really important for us to understand. Because he's contrasting the relationship of a child, of a son, with that of a slave. And he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, just as the flesh is a potential obstacle to our holiness, fear is a potential obstacle to our harmony with God, to our experience of God as a loving father. Because if you love your father, you want his approval, and then you look at how much God hates sin, and you look at how much sin you and I still have in our life, the natural question is, does God even still love me? Does God even still approve? Not only that, but is it possible that God could kick me out of his family? Is it possible that God could adopt me into his family? Call me his son. Call me his child. And then I could mess up so bad that he would say, you know what, I'm done with you, get out. Some of us know what that's like with our earthly families. Is that how God is? So Paul is contrasting that kind of relationship with the relationship we actually have with God. And what he says is that kind of relationship, the one that is governed by fear, that's more like a slave. That's more like every other religion on earth that says if you do good enough good, maybe God will accept you. Maybe. Every religion on earth says if you do the right things, maybe God will accept you. It's only Jesus. It's only the Bible that comes along and says, no, God accepts you first. Not on the basis of anything you've done, but on the basis of his love and on the basis of Jesus Christ paying the penalty for your sins. 
God accepts you first. He adopts you first. And then you get to live for him. It's only the Bible that teaches that message. You will not find it anywhere else. So Paul is contrasting the life of a slave that could be kicked out of the house with the life of a son, of a child, who is loved by his heavenly father. So what do we do then when we experience fear, when we're confronted with our own sin and we go, I don't know, I don't feel the love of God right now. Well, Paul gives us the answer. He says that the spirit of adoption as sons is the spirit by which, and that's the Holy Spirit, is the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. It's the spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So now the natural question to ask is, what does that testimony feel like? When the Holy Spirit is bearing witness, is this like a supernatural voice? Is this an audible voice? Is this something supernatural or something mystical and ecstatic? Because very rarely will we experience, if ever, that kind of mystical experience where we feel this deep, magical connection to God. I'm talking like a very supernatural sense. That's a very rare experience, if you experience it at all. And so if that's what we're relying on here, we might not ever have that assurance that we belong to God, if it depends on that deep mystical experience. But what Paul describes here is something that's much more every day, which is really good news for us. See, what he says is, the Spirit is testifying with our spirit. Now, to illustrate this point, Let's talk about water. Envision a river. The source of a river is always uphill from the mouth of the river that goes into the lake or wherever the river ends. And that's because water always flows downhill. Water can never rise above its own level. It always flows downhill. In the same way, the affections of the human heart never rise above, our, above their own level. So, before Christ, before you knew God, it was impossible for you, in your flesh, to love God and desire to please God as a loving father. You couldn't do it. Romans 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It pleases God to have this kind of communion with people. You could not desire to love God as father. So, when you face these dark nights of the soul, when you are so hit with your own sin that you fear God may reject you, and you cry out to God and you say, God, my father, help me. Am I, am I still yours? I want to please you, but I can't. Help me. Help me, Lord. That very desire at that low point must come from God. That must be the Holy Spirit himself testifying with your spirit that you belong to God. Because your desires can't, of themselves, from yourself, cannot extend all the way to heaven. So that desire to be united with God, the desire to love and please God must come from heaven itself. That is the Holy Spirit testifying with your spirit. That is why we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. And Paul uses two words here. He says Abba and Father, which is really, really important for us to get. Because this was originally written in Greek. So the word for Father, which is translated as Father in English, is pater. And so Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, we cry Abba, and we cry Pater. Why both words, Paul? Why the Aramaic word Abba and the Greek word Pater? Why is that? Is one more significant than the other? Well, it's because Paul is writing to a mixed audience. He had Jews, and he had Gentiles that he was writing to. So 
he's saying, you Jewish people, you call God Abba. That's what you speak Aramaic, you call him Abba. You Greeks, you call him Pater. That's just the word that means father. What he's saying is, you've got two ethnicities, two different kinds of people. You get the Greeks and Romans together. You've got two different ethnicities, but they are together and they have one God and one father. They are perfectly united in a new family. Here's why this is really good news. One, because your ethnicity does not define your relationship with God, nor does your family of origin. You have an earthly father. Maybe you didn't know him at all. Maybe you knew him and you didn't like what you knew. Maybe you knew him and you loved him. But whatever sins your earthly father or your earthly mother may have committed, you are not bound or obligated to follow those sins yourself. You are free from that. So you might say, well, this is what my mom always did. She always gossiped. And look, I see myself doing the same thing. I guess it's just in my blood. I guess there's really no way of avoiding that. Or man, my dad, he had these particular sins. He used to fly off the handle. And look, I'm doing the same thing. I'm just like my dad. I guess that's just my lot in life. I guess I'm a debtor to that. I guess I'm obligated to to do that. No. Apostle Paul says, no. Your family of origin does not define your walk anymore. It does not define your life. In Christ, you're set free. If you're Jewish and you call him Abba, you're Greek and you call him Pater, whatever family you come from, you've got a new father now. And God's children resemble him. And when you find yourself struggling with that sin, you can cry out to him and say, Abba, Father, Papa, Dad, Help me. That's the kind of union and harmony we have with our God. Let's talk about the third way that God's children resemble God. And that is through hope in suffering. Now at this point, maybe you're saying, hope? How does that resemble God? Because God doesn't need to have hope. Hope is something that we wish will happen in the future, that we want to happen in the future. God wrote the future. God doesn't need to have hope. How am I resembling God when I have hope? And not only that, but hope in suffering. But God doesn't suffer. I know enough theology to know God is impassable. He's not swayed by emotions and passions one way or the other. So how is me having hope in suffering any, in any way resembling God? Well, in his eternal divine nature, you're absolutely right. God is the author of everything. His decree stands. He doesn't need to hope. And he certainly doesn't suffer. But God, the Son, did not stay in heaven, did he? God, the Son, came down to us. He became a human being named Jesus. And for 30 30 years before he even began his ministry, the perfect and holy Son of God who hates sin lived among sinners like you and me. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? The spotless Son of God to live among us sinners? And then not only that, when he began his ministry, the ones who opposed him the most were the most religious people in society. At one point, they got so mad at what he said that they tried to throw him off of a cliff. At another point, they tried to stone him. And when they finally got their mitts on him, they put him in front of a judge. They, they, uh, they had false witnesses testify against him. He was flogged and scourged. He was convicted of crimes he never committed. And then he was nailed to a cross. The most excruciating execution ever devised by man. 
talk about suffering. Our God knows suffering. Why did he do it? Why subject yourself to this, God? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 gives us the answer. It says that Jesus willingly faced suffering because of the joy that was waiting for him. It says he endured the cross, scorning its shame because of that hope. See, Jesus could see past the suffering and the death he was going to face. He knew that he had been sent to suffer for sin, to die for the sins of his people. And he knew that that was going to involve a lot of suffering. But he could see past it to his resurrection. He could see past it to see that after his burial, he would rise from the dead. And after he rose from the dead and appeared to many, he would ascend back to his father to sit on the throne in the rightful place of Lord of the universe and he, where, where he now reigns and has glory and has authority over all. He could see his glorious future. And that gave him the hope to persevere in his suffering. So Paul says in verse 17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Look what it says next. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. At this point, maybe you might ask, how do I know if I'm suffering for Jesus or with Jesus? Because I don't live in North Korea, China, or Iran. I don't experience the threat of persecution the way that many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience it. What does it mean to suffer for Jesus? I'm not really being persecuted for my faith. Not really. But at the same time, I I do have suffering in my life. I have health crises. I've got marital problems. I've got uncertainty at work. Or or maybe I even just lost my job and I don't know where my next paycheck is coming. So I'm I'm suffering. But is that really suffering for Jesus? Because I'm not being persecuted. So... Am I, am I missing something here? Is Paul saying I better find a way to suffer or I won't be glorified? I won't get this glorious future? Actually, the, the message Paul has for us here, the way that it's structured is not if you suffer, meaning you had better suffer. It's since we suffer. Paul is assuming every follower of Christ suffers with Christ. So then what does he mean? One commentator says this, and I agree, that this is what Paul has in mind. It's both the daily crucifixion of our old nature, putting sin to death, and the lessons and blessings of outward calamities and change. Those circumstances that knock us off our feet in life, as well as our daily struggle against our own sin. It hurts. Life hurts. Jesus never promised that we would have an easy life. Sometimes when we experience suffering, we think, and I've, believe me, I have thought this many times, and I've wrestled with this. Is this God punishing me? Is this suffering an indication that I have strayed? And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is God disciplining us. But does that mean that God has rejected us? Have I, have I lost my hope for a glorious future now? The, the one that Scripture promises for me? 
Jesus never promised his disciples an easy life, but he did promise that he, would have, that he has overcome the world and that because of that, we can take heart. And we know that pain proceeds and comes before good things. We know this. If you've ever been on a diet, you know this. It's not easy. It's hard. Pain precedes good things. What's the good thing? I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to be more healthy. If you have a gym membership, you know pain comes before good things. If that's true in these very limited ways, why wouldn't that be true for eternity? Why wouldn't that be true in great and glorious things? If it was true in the life of Jesus, our master, and we are servants of Jesus, why wouldn't that be true of our lives as well? And so, when you get that call that there's been a horrible accident, when you get that diagnosis that there is no cure, when you get that confession from your spouse, when you come up against the sin that you have given into countless times and you feel that regret and that shame, when you experience that and you turn to God, Say, God, I don't have the strength to overcome this on my own, but I trust that you do. I trust that I belong to you, whatever this world may throw at me. I trust that Jesus Christ has paid for my sins and secured for me a glorious future. And so although I don't understand why I'm going through this pain, I don't understand why I'm facing this suffering, and quite frankly now, Lord, I don't even see how I'm going to get through this in one piece. I feel like it's going to swallow me alive and all hope is lost. Still, Lord, I know that all hope is not lost because I know that Jesus Christ went to the depths of sin and suffering for me to redeem this suffering on my behalf. And he is with me even in the middle of this. At that point, even at that lowest point, you are suffering with Christ. And you can have hope even in that suffering that you belong to Jesus. You are united with Jesus. And if you're united with him in suffering, you can be sure you'll be united with him in glory. We have a certain hope, a glorious hope. Now, I wonder if you're here today and you are a child of God. I wonder if you know that you are a child of God. How can you know? How can you be sure? How can you know if these promises are for you? Well, the Bible doesn't make us guess. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to receive Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, the Bible gives us good news and bad news. The bad news is that we have all sinned. To sin is to live according to the flesh. To sin is to give in to the flesh in opposition to God. And if you reject God, who is the author of life, the only alternative left is death. So that is our problem and our predicament apart from God. We are all born into it. We, none of us is born a child of God. But the Bible also promises that the free gift of God the provision from God is eternal life. 
And the one who decides, if you are on the side of death, a child of wrath, the Bible says, or on the side of life as a child of God, the one who makes the difference is Jesus Christ. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to be a child of God. Do you trust in Jesus today? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your sin and you're living for yourself and your flesh and said, that's not me anymore. I'm turning to Jesus. I receive him because I believe he died for me and I want to be free from my sin. If that's not you this morning, you do not have to leave out those doors still not a child of God. You can repent and trust in Christ now. You can become a child of God right now as you're sitting in this chair. Receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Believe he died on the cross for your sins and that God raised him from the dead and that he is Lord and confess to him that he is Lord. You will be saved. And then all these promises in these six verses will apply to you. But don't let another moment go by without knowing if you're a child of God. And if you are a child of God here today, All these glorious promises are for you. You belong to him. You have union and harmony with him. And you resemble him. Not perfectly. Never perfectly in this life. But in substantial ways we are growing in holiness. We are putting our sin to death even when it hurts. And we have hope for a glorious future. The Holy Spirit is preparing us for that future. And that future was purchased by our Lord, our Savior, and our brother, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to call you Father. Thank you that although you are a king and we were rebels against you, instead of condemning us, you condemned our sin in your Son. Lord, may we live more for Jesus this week than we did last week. And may we rest that you have adopted us and you love us. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit we would have more assurance, more confidence, and more joy in living for Jesus this week as your children than we've ever had before. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.